Well, good morning, everybody. Are we having a great day so far? How many people, this sermon, just to let you know, it's going to be a little more interactive than usual, so you might have to be awake. So I just was going to take a poll. How many people stayed up after midnight? Raise your hand. That's amazing. See, first service, it was like 10%. (laughs) So what I want you to do is I want you to, just to get us started in this interactive vein, I want you to tell the person, so raise your hand again if you're up after midnight. So now pick somebody in your row or near you that was up after midnight, ask them how late they stayed up. So do that right now. <laughs> yep. You guys. All right. You guys are a lot more noisy than first service. Okay. We're going to do a little test here. Um, I'm going to display, we're doing a quiz. And again, this is a participative effort. So I'm going to show a painting fragment. Now, if you were here in first service, you were disqualified from answering. So, uh, but I'm going to show, Adam, you can't say a word. So I'm going to show a painting fragment. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, and then you have to tell me the uh, painter, with an artist, that would be an artist, right? Uh, the painter who did it, and even in extra bonus points for naming the painting. All right, so you ready? I'm going to give you 20 seconds. No, not Monet. Okay, turn it off. Who said that? Yes! George. That's right. And she got the bonus points. So tell your family they're taking you out to dinner. So, <laughs> George Seurat, and a painting is Sunday in the Park. Show the painting. Next page shows the painting in the park. So you all know this painting, right? It's on exhibit in Chicago. Now, if you go back to the first slide, you'll see the way George painted this, George, that guy, painted this painting was that he spent two years, each one of those little dots of pure color, he did by hand, every single one of those. That's why it took him two years. This is a pretty large painting, too. And so if you go back to the next slide, to the big slide, what we're seeing is his his leg there. And so... What, what his idea, this is called pointillism, and what the idea is, is that, your, is that you would see not the individual colors, but you would step away from the painting and all the individual colors would blend in, so you might see the green grass, if you go back to the first slide, you might see the green grass at the bottom, and then the kind of pinkish, that eventually goes to white uh, in, the, in the painting itself. So you see that? So it's a great illustration of how each individual part is put together for the whole. All right? We're going to do another test. This, this was for the visual learners among us. Now we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk to the auditory learners among us. I'm going to play a song for you on my favorite instrument. Um, and you're going to get to guess the name of the song. Except, of course, you people who were there for service. Because you already know. All right, and this is pretty exciting. 
bass. I haven't played this bass in a long time. So um, uh, I'll play the first verse and the pre-chorus, and then you can tell me what it is. You ready? I have to put the song in my brain because it all goes away. (laughs) Pretty exciting, huh? It's coming to you, right? This is the pre-chorus. Yeah, so what song was that? You have no idea. That's the exciting part about playing bass, because it's pretty boring, and when you're practicing by yourself, that's what it sounds like. But that song was Marvelous Light. Ah, now. And so when, you, when I was trying to remember how to play this song, first I have to listen to the, I, I have to bring in the music in my brain in order to play the song correctly because I need all the pieces up there. I went to an authority on, uh, on the purpose of a bass. <laughs> I have two authorities now because uh, Ben Wood told me about what they call bass, and I'll tell you later about that. But anyway, the bass player, uh, the bass is responsible. This is from the, from the authority book called Bass for Dummies. Okay, the bass is responsible for linking the harmony of a song with a distinctive rhythm. This link contributes to the feel or style of the music. Feel or style determines whether the song is rock, jazz, Latin, or anything else. You have to have the bass in there. This morning, there was a little mix-up in Collision, and they didn't have a bass player, but they had to have a bass player because the bass player connects the rhythm with the melody. And as Ben Wood says, the bass player is like the sweatpants of the band. Nobody, ever, nobody knows who the bass player is, but when he's missing, everybody knows, right? That made me feel better anyway. Have you ever noticed that we tend to create structures that are like, that require pieces to make up a whole group? For instance, if I were to start a business, then I would have uh, pictures of three different kinds of people. So if you would look at the person on your left... That kind of person would be a salesman, exactly right. Person in the center would be an engineer. Person on the right would be your... Now, if you didn't have an engineer building you a product, the salesman's kind of useless, right? If you didn't have the... Uh, if the engineer didn't have the salesman to sell the product, then he would starve in a hurry. If they, neither one of them had the accountant, then they wouldn't know how much money they actually have to spend to build the product or to sell the product for. All three parts are necessary for the whole of the business. Okay, this is pretty much the sermon this morning, so you can go home now or tune out. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing on in that series, and we're going to look at the Trinity as unity in the body of the Christ and how God designed unity. How God designed unity. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And I'm going to try and do that as slow as possible, because I tend to hurry, if you hadn't noticed. Chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of the peace. Bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. He gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. This is a pretty rich passage to talk about unity with, and and we could spend spend a long time on this passage, but I know you're hungry, so we are not going to do that. But what I want to do is I want to kind of divide up this passage into three parts that we're going to talk about. The first part is the, is the design of God's unity. The second part is the, is the process by which God does unity. And the third is the enemy of unity. If you're a programmer, it would be the object is unity and the attributes are design, process, and enemy. Or if you like to remember mnemonically, it's a dumb P.E., Okay, because you hated PE class. She's still with me, right? All right, so let's talk about the design. Design in the model is the oneness of God and Trinity. One of the things that caught me when I was first looking in this passage is Paul says to the Ephesian people, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life. And that word urge is the Greek word parakaleo, which is my favorite word. Because the picture of that word is two words, means to call alongside, that's a compound word. And the picture that, I get, that we get from that is that Paul, if you're playing football, Paul is not on the sidelines telling the team, you go be worthy of the calling that you have received. No, he's out in the huddle with the team, calling the plays, saying this is how we're going to be worthy. Paul urges um, the Lord, Paul urges them to live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. He says, therefore, or then, in the New International Version, the King James says, therefore, I think New American Standard says that too. Whenever I see a therefore, I want to find out what it's there for. As an old Greek professor said that. You like that? I like that. So, what I want to do is kind of review, because it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians. I kind of want to review the aspect of of what Paul is referring to. He says, therefore, this is like the culmination of, of all the, all the doctrine that Paul has laid out for the, for the people. And he says, in this culmination, I want you to, I want to realize how that's going to affect your behavior. 
So I'm just going to pick out a few verses to give us an idea of the direction Paul is going. In chapter 1, Paul says, in verses 18 and 19, he says, I pray, so he's praying for the Ephesians, also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of the mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above every rule, authority, power, and dominion. So the basis of the, the, basis of the unity of Christ is first found in the power that, that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. So that act, when Jesus died on the cross, again it's the gospel, God says that power is available to us. In chapter 2, he says in verses, I'm going to read 11 through 14, he says this, chapter 2, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That power that Paul talked about in the first verse was the power that broke down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and allowed us to come into the presence of God as Gentiles, unless you're Jewish, this morning. And so, those, and so that's the foundation he's laying for unity, for the behavior and for how God has designed unity. And then finally in chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, Paul says this. He's praying for them. So that... Christ may dwell on your hearts through faith. Let me start earlier. I pray that his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in, his in, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell on your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that's the love of God, may have power together with all the saints to grasp, to seize how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. So Paul says, first of all, I want you to know that there's this power available in the resurrection that allows us uh, access to, to change behavior. Secondly, he says, I want you to know that, that the, that power affects us in our heart by God's love towards us. And thirdly, that that power is available, and that transforming power, that power of love is transformational in our lives. So the design bases itself on those things, and it doesn't do it all at once. Edith Schaefer um, once said that the fall affects each person differently. Physically, some people are strong, others are weak and sickly. In the same way, some people have a naturally good disposition, others are born with an abrasive personality, a Christ, becoming a Christian doesn't erase these inherent differences. It just gives us tools to work on them. It just gives us tools to work on them. The oneness of God 
when he is designing unity, we have this power, this transformational power available to us. That's his design. And that power is manifested in gifts. Now, the oneness of God doesn't mean the sameness of each other. Sometimes we think that every Christian ought to act the same way. Well, they ought to act within the boundaries of the same way, but they ought to be the same kind of person. But God says, no, I've designed this differently. My idea of unity is not that everybody is the same, but that I have given a diverse set of gifts so that the whole may be unified. So the oneness of God doesn't mean the sameness of us. And then he gives us an example of some personalities. And so he talks about the personalities, uh, or personalities, gifts. <laughs> they do have personalities, but the gifts that we want to give. So now, here's an, another participative question. He says that there's some became prophets. I'm going to pick two extremes, prophets, and I'm going to pick uh, pastors and teachers, okay? So if you are a prophet, what kind of personality might you picture as a prophet? Bold, okay, bold. Anything else? Wisdom, okay. You're just being too nice, huh? Assertive, exactly, and that's being nice too. Remember John the Baptist? He's a prophet, right? What does he say to the Pharisees and Sadducees? I memorized this a long time ago for a sermon because I just love it so much. He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? I say to you that God can raise up from these very stones, children of Abraham. That's kind of a prophety kind of thing to say, right? They're going to say the truth. Maybe a little extreme. He probably was just having a bad day. No, that's probably the way prophets act that day, uh, is that they are bold with the truth. Abrasive, that's a good word. <laughs> that's a, it's exactly right. So if you're having a really kind of bad, weepy day, are you going to go to a prophet and get some encouragement? <laughs> probably not. You're probably going to go to a pastor or teacher. So when you think about a pastor or teacher, now that I've laid the groundwork, what do you, kind of personality do you think there is? Nurturing. Exactly right. Paul even talks about this in chapter 6. He says in verse 21, Tychius, he says, The dear brother... And faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I am sending you to, him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he might encourage you. I bet Tychius was a pastor, you know, nurturing personality, maybe different than a prophet. But God said, the way I have designed unity for the church is that I need both. I need both those prophets, I need pastors, I need teachers, I need apostles, I need evangelists, I need all these gifts that he lays out here and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. I need all these gifts here in order to make the church unified. Well, that's just kind of odd, isn't it? He starts off with this, this one God and one Father of all, and one, and this oneness. And then he says, in order to make this oneness happen, I'm going to make each one of you completely different. And you think, well, that, how does that work? Well, God says, I'm glad you asked that question, because that's the process. How does God make that work? Let's look in verses 12 and 13 here, back in chapter 4. That was for me. He, okay, so he talks about the gifts in 11. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, before I go on to what I want to say, remember what he talked about in chapter 3? That we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's love. And he says, I want you to attain that measure, and here's the process. Now, looking at this passage, you want to pick out those of you who are English masters. Tell me what are verbs in this particular passage. Gave. Equip. Build up. Reach. Become and attain. Yeah, lots of verbs. Lots of action. He says that the process of building up, the the process of unity is not a static process. It's not a process by which we just, uh, by which we come to church and we sit around and listen to a sermon, sing some great songs, and then we go home. That's not the process of unity. That's maybe a piece of it, but that's not the process of unity The process of unity is an action word. He says that he has given God's people works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. That's our job. Now, the interesting thing is that he says we are preparing God's people for the works of service. That literally is the energy of ministry, the ergon of diakonos. Now, what do we think when we hear the word diakonos? Those are deacons. Now, if you know our deacon team at Windsor Road, you know they are not idle guys. They're out working, helping people all the time. That's what Paul is saying, that he is preparing, that the unity, the process of unity is preparing God's people for the energy of ministry, for something to do. Because as you know, in your office, when there's not enough to do, what do people begin to do? They begin to maybe backbite a little bit and snipe at each other. But if everybody is focused on one goal, then you have a team working together. God says the process of unity is preparing people for works of service and building up the body. Now, here's the big idea. So if you've been asleep up until now, this is when you need to pay attention. The big idea, am I at that slide? The big idea is this, that, that each one of us have different gifts. This is the process that we build up the body for works of service. Now, we're going to leave that up there for a minute because I want us to think about what it means to build up the body. Because the body, how many people have remodeled their house? Or redecorated? Yeah. And you know this process, right? So we've been in the same house for 21 years now, I think. Something like that. A long time. And we, when we first got into that house, uh, we put in windows because the windows were leaking. So we had, we had our buddies come out and put in windows for us, and, uh, and the windows were leaking. Well, actually, the first thing we did was put a door on the bathroom because you could see through the door, but we're not going to go into that right now. It was a really inexpensive house. So we put in windows, and then we remodeled the lots of things. We kept remodeling all the way through the house, and we did the kitchen. Karen told me this morning a long time ago, which I, didn't, I thought it was just a few years ago, but apparently it was about 10. And so we're almost done. We've remodeled every room in the house, and, and then I went, and then I was sitting in the kitchen looking at it, and the 
you know, the cabinets need painting. And uh, the floor, probably need to replace that vinyl floor again. And, uh, and there's lots of things. When I got to fix that door on the closet, I was supposed to do that during break. And then, but we're not going to get to that. But we, all this work has to be done because you know what? It falls apart. Now, if you've ever watched zombie movies, I know you don't. But if you ever do, you notice that zombies always have lots of cuts on their hands because their skin is dead and it doesn't heal. But I don't have lots of visible cuts on my hands because they heal, right? Because the body is continually building itself up and repairing all the little cuts and pieces in my body. So the purpose of the process of unity that we've been talking about here is that, is that we have different gifts. We're building up the body and that building up the body means reminding people how much God loves them. Now, how does that build up the body of Christ? Well, if I had a tough week, if I've been, if I've been uh, in a, well, you know how that does that. It just helps me understand God better if you remind me how much God loves me. If I'm listening to a song, you ever listen to radio, and you're having a really bad day, and on 88.1 or BGL, something comes on, it just makes your day. You're like, wow, I just needed that. That's called building up the body. And when you get into your small group, and somebody's had a tough day, and you sit around, and you pray for them, you listen to them, and you pray for them, that's building up the body. And when you are baking cookies so that we can give them out to other people and that fellowship that's going on, that's building up the body. And when you see somebody in need in the church and you give them maybe a little cash on the side that you had extra, that's building up the body. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, becoming mature means that we are focusing on the fact that, that we need to hold each other up so that we can go back out maybe and get beat up all over again. Maybe or maybe not. You ever notice in this passage that Paul uses the word we a lot? Because he doesn't really picture the body of Christ being an individual thing. I want to be to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. He says, we're not all going to focus on, on me. We're going to focus on the body. That means I have to be aware of the people in my small group. I have to be aware of the kids in my family and my family so that, so that I'm continually building up them until we all reach maturity in the fullness of Christ. It's always plural. Christianity is a group project. Now, how many people had group projects in college? Yeah? And you hated them, right? Because nobody ever did what they were supposed to do. But imagine a group project when everybody participated on an equal level. That would be a miracle from God, right? He says, exactly, that's what I want the body to do. Christianity is a group project. It, we, it looks at the whole body. But the, that the, but the problem with that is that the body, the unity in the body of Christ has an enemy. And that enemy want, seeks to pull it apart. It's interesting that Paul uses in um, verse 3, he uses make every effort, it says in the New International Version, and that uh, Greek word, I can't even pronounce it. It starts with an SP or a sigma pi, not an SP. My Greek professor would shoot me if I said that. So he said, it says that picture of that word, make every effort, is like, is like uh, an aspect of hurrying. So I want to run 
to the, I want to run to the problem that's breaking. Make every effort to keep, to uh, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort is the picture of running. It's like a fireman. You ever notice that, that emergency responders, when there's a problem, where do they run? Towards the problem, right? That's the picture that Paul wants to paint for us. He says, I want you, when you see the unity of the body threatened within the structure of Matthew 18, go home and read that. Within the structure of Matthew 18, I want you to make sure that you are, are keeping that in mind because we want the whole body to be unified and the enemy is there. Verse 14 says that there will always be people. There will always be people who want to tear apart the unity of the body because, because that, would, that, would be the worst, um, that would be the worst witness. Now, we don't... <laughs> See, I knew that timer was a great idea. I'm just going to ignore it. Um, on your papers, we're going to do something fun here. Because one of the things that, that uh, strike me is, is I know, I know you, you don't believe this, but there are some people that just annoy me to all, to, and I have never figured it out until we got to this particular, Karen and Lisa found this book, it says How to Deal with Annoying People by Bob Phillips. Now it's not the Bob Phillips that's in this area, but it's a Bob Phillips, and he wrote this book in uh, uh, by the way, when you go to work uh, on Tuesday and you want to call the bookstore, see, don't say, hey, can you give me that book on how to deal with annoying people? Because others might overhear you and think they're the ones, which of course they're not. But anyway, how you deal with annoying people, first understand that you have to understand yourself, and then you have to understand your, their, them, and then you can get over the dealing with annoying people. So... On that piece of paper that's in front of you that looks like this, we're going to do one of those little psychological tests. And this is probably like all the other ones that you've ever done, Myers-Briggs or whatever, but we're doing this one for fun today. So what I want you to do, so for those people who are really analytical, let me give you the instructions. The drivers among you probably have already completed this (laughs) or thrown it away. I don't need that. I already know what I am. Um, So I'm on the task relationship side. I'm going to start there. Um, you see on one column it says dress more formal and the other column it says more informal. So whichever one matches you the best, just check that off. So I'm going to give you a, about a minute to go through that, to go through those things and just, and you don't have to spend a lot of time on it because that's what your Sunday afternoon is for. Um, so it, <laughs> you don't know what my Sunday afternoon is for. Um, what I want you to do is to go through that and see how many task or relationship you are, okay? So go to it. And it's always fun to watch the wives. No, no, that's not you. (laughs) It's not a gender thing. No, it's a personality thing. All right, I didn't give you enough time, but you get the general idea. So how many of you, just let me ask real quick, how many of you are more task-relational, task people? 
Okay, and how many of you are more relational? Okay, yep, okay, so check that on the bottom there. I see myself as more task-oriented, I see myself as more relationship, and then flip it over and do the same thing for ask and tell. All right, so how many people are more ask, just generally, more ask? How many people are more tell? Oh, that's interesting. So right down at the bottom, more ask, more tell. Check that. Okay, now I'm going to display a a chart that just kind of gives us an idea what it is. If I'm an, uh, and I am, an ask relationship person, then he would identify me, this test would identify me generally as an amiable personality. And an ask task or analytical, tell task or driver, tell relationship are expressive people. So we have, look like we had a fair amount of expressive people here who stayed up late last night. Is that interesting? So, so how does this help me? Well, this helps me maintain unity in the body of Christ because uh, the book goes on to talk about how the strengths and weaknesses of these personalities, through the strengths of the amiables and the strengths of the, uh, the expressives and the strengths of the drivers. It also talks about the weaknesses. So if I'm an amiable, I know that I, know that I have a hard time dealing with driver kinds of people. I have an easy time dealing with expressive kind of people because I can just sit and listen, and they'll talk my ear off all day long. But a driver person I'm kind, of, kind of puts me on edge. So in the body of Christ, if I'm, the one thing I like about this tool is if I'm looking at somebody, this gives me a, a, this first of all helps me be aware of myself, but secondly, it helps me be aware of you. So when I'm looking at somebody and I say, this person is kind of getting on my nerves, they might just be a little bit annoying or even a lot annoying. Then if I know, wait, you know, this person is displaying driver personality, driver tendencies, then I might be able to step back into the power of Christ and and enable me to get along better and to preserve the unity in the body of the Christ. But you know what? In the body of Christ, we need drivers, or the weekend of service wouldn't have happened, right? And we need uh, uh, analytical people who would have said, for the weekend of service, wait, wait, we're going to need a big list of things before you go out there. And we're going to need the amiable people saying, sure, I'll go. Just tell me where to be. And I'll just go out and do it and express it to people to explain to everybody how to make it happen. We need all those groups. And God says, my plan for unity in the body of Christ is everybody together. So when you look at someone in the body of Christ and you see their giftedness, remember that giftedness is a strength. It's not wrong. And one of the interesting things that I think about when, I, when I'm thinking about unity in the body of the Christ, when I'm thinking outside my own family, outside the small group, that the unity of Christ is within the body of Christ in the church, but it's also within the body of Christ that's in Champaign-Urbana. It's also within the body of Christ that's in Illinois. It's also, and you that have gone on short-term mission trips know full well that when you go out and you find somebody who's a Christian, you go out to minister to somebody in another country, and they're a Christian, there's the bond. There's the unity, because we all start, we all start with the same one God.
We're going to be, we're going to be um, doing communion this morning because we know that's where it all begins. That the body of Christ coming together equally at the foot of the cross and all of our differences were, were put together by God to be together. And that is the price that he paid for us to, to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Let's pray.